The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. It is a delight uh, and privilege uh, to bring God's word to you this evening. Uh, when, when I originally planned uh, on preaching from Jude, I didn't make the connection uh, between it and Second Peter. Uh, but, but last week in the morning, uh, when Dr. Rogers was preaching on Second Peter, uh, it reminded me of, of some of the close connections between the two. Uh, they, they both, both Second Peter and Jude, deal with the reality that there are dogs and pigs in the church. There are people who are like dogs returning to their vomit and pigs wallowing in filth. But what, what gives them this, this name? What, what gives them this, this harsh moniker? It's lying about Jesus. It's trusting in blasphemous prophecies instead of the word of God, leading Christians astray into a cheap understanding of grace that can promote Jesus Christ as being Savior without being their Lord. Rather than seeking the peace and purity of the church, of Christ's bride, they seek to turn her into a whore. They are like whitewashed tombs, sparkly outside but full of putrefying flesh and stench on the inside. And all these images are biblical images for this reality. Dr. Rogers preached on the dogs and pigs last week. Jesus talks about them. Paul, Peter, James, Jude write about them, and they form a theme throughout all of the writing of the Apostle John. These people exist, and they are a dangerous problem. Last week, Dr. Rogers preached on their existence and how we should recognize them. Uh, Tonight, I want to look at what we should do about them. Supposed to recognize them, and then what should we do about them? A Jude clearly addresses this in his short letter. So please, please turn to Jude. It's the last book, second to last book in the Bible. So if you go to Revelation and go back one, uh, it's it's found there. I'm going to read Jude one through twenty-five. Hear the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme in all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these also that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, Our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Would you bless the reading and preaching of it, Lord? Uh, We come with expectation that we would learn something about the message of the book of Jude, uh, that we would have a vision of its place uh, in all the testimony of Scripture, but we ask, Lord, that we would come expecting much more, that we would expect you to change us by your word. 
accomplish this, Father, uh, because we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the message of Jude's letter is to contend for the faith. I didn't have to do a lot of careful exegesis to find that, because Jude says it. He says, I'm writing to appeal to you to contend for the faith. Uh, So I do want to just pack that out uh, over the next several points. Uh, I'm going to be going through the text in order. Uh, So if you do keep your Bibles open, you already have an outline uh, for my sermon in front of you. Because uh, it's, it's a short letter. Uh, we're going to be able to go through the whole thing this evening. Uh, and so just the text is my outline. Uh, so let's first look those. The message is to contend. Let's look at what Jude says about the identity. The identity of those who contend for the faith. Verses 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So who's the audience? It's those who have been called by God. Being called is nice. Getting a call on the phone, being called, being picked for a specific position, for a team, for a job. But being called by God. Chosen, intentionally selected by God. That's who Jude is talking to. Beloved in God the Father. Another aspect of their identity. God is our Father. We belong to someone. Our relationship with God is not like being invited over to someone's house and having a great experience at their table. That can be great. When someone welcomes you into their house uh, and they even say things like make yourself at home, uh, please be at ease, just like you're one of the family, uh, you can still feel that division of this is fantastic, this is enjoyable, but I'm not part of the family. Uh, It's not like that. Uh, We actually are in Jesus Christ belonging to God, and we are beloved in him as a father loves his children. And we're kept We're kept for Christ. We're kept by Jesus Christ. Our position as Christ's servants, having that honorable work as Christ's servant, and our status as God's children, enjoying that intimate fellowship, are for sure. Our status and our position are for sure. It will stand firm because Jesus is the reason we are being kept. And we are actually meant for him. We are kept for Jesus. In God's sovereign love, we can say about us and Jesus that we were meant for each other. And we are kept for him by God. God's preserving mercy in our lives to us is new every day. It's not as if God has an orientation period. He adopts us and he gives us an orientation period where he lets us know the lay of the land of what it means to be a Christian. And then we're launched into being some independent Christian, we are consistently, continually kept. We are held in the love of God. And those, those sweet truths in verse 1 uh, are the basis for the blessing Jude gives us in verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to us. This is not a vacuous request. This is not religious speak. 
Jude has James for a brother. James also wrote a letter of the New Testament. He knows how to pray. Pray the will of God, and it will be granted to you. And it is. This is true. What Jude prays for us, what he prays for the people of receiving his original letter, we have received. We have received mercy, peace, and love. Our sins are forgiven in Christ. And not in an abstract, the dark side of the force has been defeated for you in some general way, but very specifically, what we did this week. What you did today. What you felt, thought, and sought that were against God has been forgiven in Christ. We have received mercy and we will receive mercy. We have received peace. We have this renewed relationship with God. We have the same kind of peace with God that Jesus has because of his work in our lives. We have received this peace, and we will receive this peace. And do you know how much Jesus loves you? Have you stopped and reflected on the warmth of his affection for you? On the intimacy of his many kindnesses to you? Of the beauty of his sacrifice for you, the glorious power of his resurrection and new life that you share in. His, his many kindnesses, your breath, your life, all things that you have, all things that are for him, from him, through him, and to him, he personally gives to you. Love has most definitely been multiplied to us, and it most definitely will continue to be multiplied to us. Jude's prayer in verse 2 has been answered to thousands of years of Christians with a hearty yes and amen in Jesus. So for those who Jude is calling to contend, which includes us, I think the first point of application is to worship in spirit and in truth. Let's sing heartily. Let's be attentive to God's word. Be engaged in corporate prayer. Honor the king. Praise my soul, the king of heaven. To his feet your tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me his praise should sing. Praise him, praise him. Wouldn't it be great to go on about that? Praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him. Praise the everlasting king. Jude thinks it would. But there's a battle going on. He was eager to write more about this common salvation, about these glorious truths that he's rehearsed, but he has an appeal to make. An appeal to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So we looked at the identity of those who need to contend, and here let's just look at the actual call to contend. What is the nature of this call to contend? I have five observations on this call. First, It's an active verb. 
And this is, not, this is not just a grammatical observation. It's an active verb, which means we need to be active in exertion, in contending. This is a call to fight for the faith, to be proactive in attacking falsehood, not just defending the truth, not just a call to protect and guard it and faithfully hand it down. There is an offensive nature to this. There's a call to strive. There's a, again, there's an offensive, not just offensive, but offensive nature to this call. Second, this call is to everyone who is called by God. This is a task for the whole church. Jude is writing to the whole church. This isn't one of the pastoral epistles uh, that Paul writes, where we want to be very careful in delineating uh, what, what, is, what is the call here to the whole church? What is the call specifically to the ordained elders? Wanting to be careful about what is a ministry of the whole, what is a ministry of the few. This is not one of those texts. This, it makes it very clear that the call is for all believers. Contending for the faith is a family business. It's for all of God's people. Third, this is a call to contend with those who are within the church. This is not about those people out there. It's about these people in here. Jude is calling God's people to contend with those who claim to be members of the church. They have crept in. They have gone unnoticed. These are not people who claim to be going against the grace of Jesus. They might very well be deceived into thinking they are following Jesus. They might be nice people. They might be elders. They might be generous. They might be many things, but they are a problem, and a problem that is a church problem. Fourth, we observe that this problem is a matter of objective truth. We must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. If we are going to, going to contend for the faith, we need to know what the faith is. If we're going to contend for the faith, we need to know what the faith is. Here, Jude is using the word faith to designate the whole body of teaching, uh, the apostolic teaching about Jesus Christ. And, and notice what it was. It was delivered. It was not derived by personal or communal contemplation and soul-searching. It was not decided upon by the agreement of any council. It was delivered. Amazon and the post office can't be original with what they decide to put on your doorstep. They can't, they can't be creative with what they deliver to you. They must faithfully deliver what was sent The faith was delivered, and it was delivered once for all. There's no return policy. There are no defects. The quality of it is not open to question. If if you are not fully satisfied, you know, some of these things have customer satisfaction guarantees. If, If you are not fully satisfied with the faith, with the doctrines, with the scriptures that have been delivered, the prob- it does not say something about the quality of the item. It says something bad about you. 
Christians are not customers. They are, as Jude referenced, servants of Christ and sons of God. There is an objective truth here, and it's not just an objective truth in some sort of abstract truth sense. It's truth that's connected and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Fifth, notice the fruit of these teachings, the fruit of these unnoticed, ungodly creepers that have perverted God's grace. They have perverted God's grace into sensuality. They they have seemingly embraced the logic that Paul condemns. They have sinned, so grace may abound. And living in this licentiousness, living, living as if God's grace gives license to sin, is denying Jesus as master and Lord. You can't have two masters. You cannot be a slave to sin and a slave to Jesus. You cannot fight for two, both sides in a war at the same time. Slaves have no free time. You've got to serve somebody. Soldiers must be loyal or else they are traitors. There's no third way. So I've mentioned it throughout, but let me just repeat as we see these five things, that they're all true today. Jude is relevant to today. All of us are called to contend against people who are in the church, who attack the objective truths of the faith, and pervert the grace of God so they feel like they have a license to sin. This is all still true. Do you care? Do you care that it's still the case? that the faith needs to be actively contended for by all of God's people. Now, now contending can perhaps sound scary, or like a bother, or it can sound like it's uncharitable, or it can sound like it's self-righteous. It can sound mean. But read verse 3 and 4 again. It is the clear teaching of God, and it's about Jesus. It's about the name and fame of our beautiful Savior. John John Calvin said, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I were to witness the truth of God attacked and not speak up. And, And so listen, if you do not take attacks on the Christian faith, attacks on Jesus personally. If you don't take it personally, it says something about your personal relationship to the Christian faith and to Jesus. We are called to contend, but it won't come naturally to many of us. So I want to offer two quick points of application, because it might not come naturally to you. Maybe it comes too naturally to some of you. Maybe it comes, doesn't come as naturally. So, so here, but for regardless of your, your stance toward this call to contend, I think these points of application are relevant. First, ask offensive questions. I, I don't mean ask offensive questions like, are you stupid? I, I, I mean ask offensive questions, offensive questions, questions that have a point. Contending within the church is hard. Contending within people who are all claiming to be Christians who are all claiming to have the same foundations is hard, so start with asking questions. Don't jump to statements like, that's heresy, that's antinomianism. Start with questions. And, and try this, this simple one. It's golden. Really simple, really good. What do you mean by that? 
It's a great question. To get things going, what do you mean by that? Just ask someone. If you think they've said something wrong, just ask them, what do you mean by that? Or, or, or here's another one. This one's longer, more complex, but also great. I got it from J.C. Ryle. Do you think that that is the balanced teaching of all of the scriptures? Do you think that that's the balanced teaching of all of the scriptures? Again, these are people who are going to be quoting scripture. They're perhaps quoting things out of context, so you need to ask the question, do you think that is the balanced teaching of all of the scriptures? Asking those questions might get things going. Uh, They could be a good way to start contending for the faith. Second, so first, ask offensive questions. Second, don't be defensive. Don't be defensive. Given the truths we just laid out, that this issue matters, that it still is a problem in the church, and that everyone should contend, don't be defensive. When, when you say something that's sloppily phrased, perhaps, or that, or that maybe you phrase in an intentionally punchy way, because you want to sort of shake people's concepts up a little bit, don't be defensive when a brother or a sister in Christ asks you very plain, blunt questions about your orthodoxy. Don't be defensive. Don't say, how dare you? Don't say to other people, how dare they? Rather, rejoice that you have a sibling who cares about Jesus, his bride, and you enough to not be a slave to being nice. So ask offensive questions and don't don't be defensive. And all of this comes to the point of that we need to contend for the purity of God's grace and the dignity of our only Master and Lord Jesus. So we've seen the identity of those who should contend for the faith. We've looked at five things about the actual call to contend for the faith. And then, very briefly, I want to look at the nature and the future of the foe. The nature and future of the foe. And and here uh, is where I realized I could have preached three or four sermons on the book of Jude. Uh, So there's more here than we're going to be able to cover. Uh, But look at verses 5 through 19. I'm not going to read the entirety of it again, but look at verses 5 through 19. I think you can look at this as a reminder chunk. If you look at verse 5 and if you look at verse 17, you'll see that there's a call to remember in both of them. He reminds them in both those things that this is not a new problem for God's people. We get stories of it in this section from the Old Testament, and we get warnings from, about it from the apostles. And we also see throughout all of these examples that are given that God always takes it personally. And the description given here about the hard-hearted rebellion and corruption helps us see why God always takes it personally. So we see that here. Another thing we see in all of these examples, all of these stories that Jude jumps around in, is that God will always vindicate his name and execute wrath on the ungodly. And because of that, Jude implies that because of this, we must contend for the faith and join the fight. God's enemies should be our enemies. Now, what do these look like today? Um, Well, some of them might look exactly the same. Quoting, looking at visions in a way that rejects authority, giving over uh, licentiousness uh, to the flesh, 
Uh, so it could look in exactly the same way, or it could be a little bit more subtle, uh, and rejecting authority and relying on dreams and visions and ecstatic experiences could be one way, but the other way could be phrases like this. The God I believe in, or I like to think about it like this. As if, as if the God I believe, as if in your belief is the distinguishing aspect of the character of God. Or, or I like to think of it like this. When, it, when it's not drawn from Scripture, when it's not a good and necessary consequence of Scripture, but this is a very personal reference of I like to think about these truths of the Christian faith like this. Those are potential ways that we might have to go into it. And you can understand why it's called blasphemy. When we do this, when people do this, we are acting as if God should be able to fit into our notions of him. Also, we recognize them. So we might recognize them by phrases like that. We also recognize them that regardless, across the board, Jude is saying it leads to a message that minimizes personal holiness. They might teach chilling with Jesus, but not following him. They might teach Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as Lord. They might teach what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. So that's the nature and future of those of the foe. Uh, and one, one more point of application uh, that uh, hits me very personally. Uh, beware of bemoaning. Beware of bemoaning this reality, that there are people who, corrupt the pervert, who pervert the grace of God. It's nothing new. If we get into this sort of like inward focus, like it's just so awful that there are people out there who are whining is not contending. And, and beware of bemoaning, whether it's this, this, this personalization of it or this, or this corporate, like, ah, oh, how can things be like this? And again, beware of bemoaning, not because it's not important. And also, beware of it, not because it doesn't personally affect you. These sorts of perversions do affect you. They cause divisions in the church. They might cause beloved, beloved family members, friends of yours, to be led astray. But don't bemoan it, don't whine about it instead of contending for it, because it's actually not about you. It's about our Lord Jesus and the purity of his church. So we've looked at the identity, and we've looked at the call, we've looked at the nature and future of the foe, and I want to lastly look at this, uh, well, almost lastly, uh, look at the method of contending. What should we contend by? And this is going to look at verses 20 and 21 in more depth. I think we can summarize verses 20 and 21 by flipping the order of it around and saying it this way. Contend by keeping yourselves in the love of God, by praying in the Spirit, and building yourselves up in the faith. So look at that. Look, that's how we should contend for the faith. That's one aspect of how we should contend for the faith. We should keep ourselves in the love of God. By praying in the Spirit. Now again, there could be a whole other sermon on praying in the Spirit. There are, actually, many other sermons on praying in the Spirit, and some of them are fantastic, so you can look them up. I work in a, excuse me, I work in a school, I like giving homework, look up some good sermons on praying in the Spirit. But just two, two very brief things on praying in the Spirit. One, great way to start praying with this, for this, in the Spirit is start with Jesus' name. Pray in Jesus' name. 
Make much of Jesus in your prayer. Make much of God in your prayer. The Holy Spirit loves to make much of Jesus and loves to make much of God the Father. So pray in the Holy Spirit. Make much of God in your prayers. Second, pray the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit has given us the Scriptures. If you want to pray in the Holy Spirit, use, the whole, use Scriptures to pray. So pray in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God by praying in the Spirit and by building yourselves up in the faith, up in the teachings of the Lord you have received. Build yourselves up in Christ preached from all the Scriptures. And notice how personal this must be. This is not a generic thing. This must be personal. This is not a doctrinal endeavor. It's It's not an abstraction. It's not saying build up the faith doesn't say push the faith to a new level of doctrinal clarity. Push the faith, build the faith up to a new level of exegetical faithfulness. Build the faith up into a more accessible teaching on practical holiness. If those things do happen, they are meant to build the people of the church, to change the people of the church. It says build yourselves up in the faith. And how, what's it, the other aspect of this that they need to do is waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is a statement that is one of joy. Waiting for the mercy that leads to eternal life. But here, right after verses 5 through 19, it also sets a stark contrast. What are the beloved waiting for? Mercy in Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What is everyone else waiting for? What awaits everyone else? And especially those Jude has been talking about. And remember, he's talking about church-going folk. What are they waiting for? They are waiting for God's anger to be fully and finally revealed for them. It is a fearful thing to be a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Eternal fire is prepared for them. God's wrath is stored up for them. Unending darkness is reserved for them. The full and final judgment of God will be delivered to them. Will be but not yet. So we contend in hope. We contend in hope that they might repent. And there is hope because of Jesus. There is hope because Jesus, God's perfect Son, did not have mercy and peace and love multiplied to him, but rather had condemnation, torment, and wrath multiplied to him, and darkness engulfed him instead of the Father's shining face. And he was killed under the hand of an angry God because of what our sin deserved. It was our licentious living and sensuality our perversion of God's grace, our denial of the lordship 
of Jesus Christ that Christ had to die for. We have seen God's wrath on His people fully kindled and spent at the cross. And God victoriously raised Him from the dead to vindicate the fame of His name. And so we might know that we are no longer in our sins. We have already seen all of God's wrath that is talked about in Jude against His people displayed at the cross. There's no more. And, and so this is, this is one of the key points. That as we fight, and we must fight, those who pervert the grace of God, we dare not forget the grace of God. That's what makes us passionate to fight for the faith in the first place. Jesus, as revealed in the Scriptures, carefully and correctly read, is the only way to escape the wrath to come. It is the only way for perverters of grace to become recipients of it. We must not dishonor the grace of God with our pride as we seek to contend for it, with our self-righteousness. Again, this is something that, that, that I personally struggle with. I can get riled up about people who pervert God's grace, and I'm willing to talk about it. I'm willing to talk about it a lot. I talk about people who pervert God's grace and rely on dreams, etc., but I confess that I do not talk to them. I talk about them with people who agree with me. I do not actually contend with them. I talk about contending with them with other people, but that's not contending, that's gossiping. And it becomes an echo chamber of self-righteous pride. And God's grace should rebuke me. It does rebuke me. And that's why we all need this final exhortation in Jude in verses 22 and 23. It's a very simple exhortation to reach out to those people who you contend with. Reach out, reach out to them. It says, respond with mercy to the doubtful. Respond with mercy. And mercy doesn't mean don't worry about it, no big deal. Mercy just means being for them. More homework. Uh, read David Powelson's The Constructive Displeasure of Mercy. More homework. Respond to them with mercy. Also, we see sacrificial zeal. And look at this picture, snatching them out of the fire. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. We see sacrificial zeal in reaching out to people because, very simply, you might get burned if you try to snatch someone out of the fire. Lastly, showing mercy with fear. So showing mercy, being for someone, doesn't mean in the least that you minimize what they have done, that you minimize the deceitfulness of their teaching, that you minimize the error, or that you be lighthearted about it, or that you be casual about it. It doesn't mean that at all. So we should contend for the faith because God is merciful and contending is an act of mercy. Verses uh, 24 and 25 are perhaps the most familiar part of Jude, uh, this doxology at the end, and it brings us right back to where we started, uh, the, the worship of God. Uh, notice it also brings us right back to where we started. If you look at verse 1, verse 20, and verse 24, you see uh, 
a progression with the word kept. We are described as those who are kept for Jesus Christ. And then we are told to keep ourselves in the love of Christ. And Jude ends by worshiping the one who is able to keep us. And this this doxology should, should give us the humility to realize, as the doxology says, that don't think it's because of you that you're not one of these that need to be contended against. You, have, you, are, you are in the hands of someone who is able to keep you, able to present you blameless. And also, don't think it's about you. It's about the one to whom glory and honor and authority should be given forever and ever. So that is the doxology of the contentious. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity. Uh, Thank you for the way that it shows us the majesty, the riches of your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Would your mercy to us in Jesus give us a passion for contending with those personally, in graciousness, in mercy, who pervert the grace of God. Bless us in this task. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.